Hello, Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. And before we get to today's guest, I want to encourage everyone right now to go to our website at www.bonsai.film. That's B-O-N-S-A-I dot F-I-L-M. That's right. Stop this podcast. Go to the internet. Go to www.bonsai.film and click on the resources link. There you'll be able to join our creative community and be given access to an ever-growing slew of film-related resources and tools at your disposal. Of course, it's zero cost to your wallet. Again, that's www.banzai.film to enjoy and leverage our ever-growing resource library amongst many other things like, but not least, all of our past podcast episodes. For example, so... If you visit us, our promise is to always bring you value and to never waste your time. On to today's guest. We have a wonderful guest today. I'm really excited. Today we have a conversation with Ryan Hartsock. He's a producer, learner, mentor, adventurer, innovator, husband, father, and brother. We chat about how to navigate the film industry outside of the Hollywood bubble and what it means to produce where you are. So, without further delay, I give you producer and the tallest man in the room, unless that room is a basketball court, Ryan Hartsock. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film Get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hartsock. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a film and commercial producer and executive producer. I also do some creative director work and in general just have tried to be an adventure of life. So a lot of my occupation reflects that, uh, that want to be on that adventure. Uh, social media, you can find me. The place I spend a lot of time right now updating is going to be LinkedIn, which I don't know about previous guests, but that's a place that I've found because it's a benefit both from a personal, but a lot of the business end of things. So you can just find me at Ryan Hartsock on LinkedIn, but also on Instagram and Facebook. It's all just Ryan Hartsock. I had the uh, the keen pleasure not to have to try to do weird spaces and underscores and anything like that. So just Ryan Hartsock, all one word on all those mediums and you can find me. And what uh, might we know you for and what are you working on now? Um, I, oh man, this is, you might know me uh, from being the producer of other versions of you. It's a feature film that should be coming out here in 2019, as well as being a producer with Maki Dap for many years on award-winning 48-hour film competition films. Ours actually had the the privilege of being able to go to Cannes a few years and go to Filmapalooza. And now getting the the privilege of working with Matki and other directors on a multitude of different things, whether it be broadcast or digital based. Fan freaking tastic. So Ryan, um, this is an absolute pleasure. I am pumped to have you on because you've been doing this for a long time and you come from this really unique perspective. You're a filmmaker in the Midwest, um, how has that affected you? How, how, how has that changed the way you approach this business? It's funny. I was riding in a car yesterday. My car was in the shop and like the shuttle driver was driving me and he's, you know, they, they're making small talk. Like, what do you do? And that's always the weird question. Cause it's, I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I'm a producer of, uh, commercials and film and he goes, and you live in the Midwest. Like it was, it's something that <laughs> most people, I think it's just weird. Like, wait, wait a second. That's, that's for the coasts or that's for the big metro areas. And a lot of it, um, you know, my wife and I talk about this often because 
we've definitely chosen very intentionally to stay where we are. A lot of it is due to the fact that we have three kids and that's a very important part of our lives and wanting to make sure that we're uh, present parents, that we're around them, that we build into them. But we also, I'm, I'm a huge believer in having kind of a robust life, meaning that it's not just about my professional life, but there's also a deeply personal side to things. And the Midwest has proven to be a place that for me personally has uh, really enriched that. And I think that being a filmmaker in the Midwest is a little odd. Sometimes there is, there is a sense that you're missing out. And, you know, I've had many, many friends move out to LA and there, there's a buzz. There's a constant flow of work where I definitely have to do a whole lot more hustling here and a lot more work behind the scenes to try to make things happen. And I, I just think it's naturally when you're naturally not in that river that of creativity that LA has created and the film communities on the coast have created, you have to work all the harder to, to get to that place, insert yourself in those places and really continue to, to not be forgotten. And that's, that's been an ongoing challenge, but it's a welcome challenge. You know, I, it's, it's not something I'm not aware of, but it's, it's something from time to time you go, this decision definitely has made things a little bit more difficult, but, uh, yeah, all, all good things are worse than difficulty. Do you see yourself making a move in the future? Cause you know, um, you know, once the kids are out of the house or are older or, that's a that's actually a really good question because I've I've talked to several of my business partners that I work with often about this very question and I think it'd be something that would be on the table as we go depending on the opportunities that would arise. There's several uh, projects that I'm working on right now that if those moved forward to such a place where they'd be in production or things would happen as a result of that 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 would probably be a logical extension of those projects. Mm -hmm. But at this point. Uh, I feel like it would be a little presumptive of me sometimes to, to move to LA. I feel like sometimes you're, you're becoming the, the small fish in a giant ocean where here it has been a little bit more of a medium sized fish in a, uh, small lake kind of feel. And for better or for worse, once you accept that status, I think you're able to, at least for me, be able to embrace it and see what the future may hold because the future might hold that move and might not. But for me, I think I'll be okay either way. I think I'll be content and excited about whatever uh, road uh, my wife and I decide to travel down in the future. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like it's really hurt you that much. You do really wonderful work and you stay very busy. And, and early on in your career, you got a, an incredible break as an intern for Ralph Winter who uh, did the Fantastic Four and X-Men Origins um, amongst many others. How did, how did you land that? Man, I, so I, I talk to students a lot about filmmaking just because I wish when I was a student uh, back in high school, someone talked to me, to me more about it. And a lot of times I tell them, you know, when, I was ex when, when people explained life and kind of your occupational pursuits as you grew into adulthood – they always describe it often as like a linear path, like a straight road. And I literally put like a straight road up on a, up on the screen and say, it's like this, like you just think, well, Hey, I, I go to high school, I go to college, I get my degree, I go get a job, that job takes care of me. And I retire. I do all those things. I check all those boxes. And I think now, um, you know, I'm f almost 43. So I'm like that gen X and below, that world, which was constructed maybe previously, is no longer really the world we live in every day. And I came out of college. I, I graduated college with a degree in English education. I taught in middle school uh, to eighth graders. And about, man, it was I was married. And probably a year into my marriage, my wife was like, listen, you talk about this filmmaking thing and you really like it. And you talk about one day you'll want to be this and one day you want to be that. And she's like, listen, you either need to shit or get off the pot here. Like, let's, let's figure this out because That's this amazing. is the time. Left. And so she was the one who was the catalyst for me to kind of 
put on the the hat of decision making because it's easy to talk about that. It's another thing to find something and go do it. And I was able to find a film school in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's still there and it's doing amazing things. Uh, it's the Compass College of Cinematic Arts. And they were a young startup film school. And essentially they had people from both coasts come in and decide they wanted to start a Midwestern film school. Uh, in many ways, they wanted to create it outside of the systems that existed to help filmmakers who want to really uh, pursue filmmaking, but also know that some of people like me, I already had a job, I was teaching, but I was a teacher. So I had three months off during the summer and my wife and I left. I, I remember this distinctly. We we were uh, both teaching. The day after school ended, we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan for three months. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for a summer. That was the summer that I realized I wanted to be a producer. Producer is one of those terms that you're like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, <laughs> I'm a producer. They're like, what? Like people know about writers and directors and actors and cinematographers, but producers are like that mystery thing. And I think most people think it's kind of like that thing that people do who are lazy or like, I want to put my name on a screen. So I'm going to be a producer. I, I found out very quickly that the producer is the person that empowers people that are way more smart and talented than they are. And I was like, I like that. I want to be the dumbest person in the room, but I want to give the greatest opportunities to the people that may not have it here and say, go do what you're great at. And I, it was like this epiphany. And through that film school, Ralph was on the board and they said, Hey, we're thinking about starting internships. Do you want to be the first intern uh, that we've had and go out to Vancouver? Wow. Timing. And so everything. the next summer, that's amazing. It was, it was it was awesome. So they were doing pre-pro during that. So by the time the next summer rolled around, they were two months into filming. And so literally the same thing occurred the next summer. The day after school ended, I flew to Vancouver. And I actually, like, my wife was getting her master's, so she couldn't come along. So it was just me. I, I moved to Vancouver and was I, I i showed up on set i'd never been to a big film in my entire life you know like you've watched behind the scenes on dvds but you're showing up and you're like holy shit where am i right. and i remember meeting ralph and ralph was already busy as you know these boards all over his office he's doing stuff he's like hey go ahead just head down to the sound stages they were at vancouver film studios there's like eight sound stages they occupied for the different sets that they had I walked down, I had my little badge at that point and I was kind of looking around and this guy comes over and he goes, Hey, uh, who are you? I introduced myself. Hey, I'm Ralph's intern. He goes, have you, have you seen the stages yet? No, no, no. He goes, Oh, let me take you on a, a tour. My name's Brian. And I said, well, my name's Ryan. And he goes, that's cool. I'm the director. And next <laughs> Ryan Singer then takes me on a, a three, literally a three hour tour of everything and walks me through and I got to know Ralph, Brian Singer, um, Tom DeSanto, um, all these people that were there just gave me access to this world. It was like instantaneous access. And it was Ralph that gave me one of the most, probably the piece of advice that I've held most, uh, attuned to that I've, that I've literally remember, at least once a week. So I'm leaving the experience I'm having with Ralph on X-Men. I'm about to go back to the Midwest, right? I'm about to go back and teach eighth graders in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I turned to him and I'm leaving. I said, Ralph, what is, what's one thing you want me to remember from all this experience before I head back? And he goes, produce where you are. And I was like, all right. And it took me a while to digest. But for me, what I've held to the meaning of that is, you don't need to be in somewhere special to make movies. Mm -hmm. Creativity isn't bottled up in some location. There isn't some elixir that's in the water of LA or New York or London or wherever you, the, the big hubs of filmmaking are going on. You have to view your role as a creative that you, where you are, are useful and that you're no good where you're not. Like I can't go, well, when I go to LA, then I'll be a filmmaker. It's like, no, wh where you are, that's the important place. Take advantage of the opportunities, create opportunities where you are. 
And so literally I came back to Cincinnati, Ohio. I wrote curriculum for eighth graders to learn film on iMovie one on blueberry IMAX and on Sony DV eight cameras. And I started teaching kids how to make teach film because it let me do what I was passionate about and hopefully unlock that same thing in kids. And to this day, I still do some of that in my spare time. I go, like I'm looking in my office right now. I teach uh, teach filmmaking couple couple weeks a year at Boys and Girls Club here nearby, and just teach them on on iPads how to do the basics of story structure and how to create a little film for themselves and let them be creators. And it all came honestly from Ralph's advice of produce where you are. That's that's truly wonderful, and um, what a unique and cool way. Um, to give back to the community. You know, I grew up, I went to the Boys and Girls Club and um, there were there was no one there to teach us anything um, of great value except how to play paper football and bumper pool. And that, that was, <laughs> Those are great things though. Don't understand. <laughs> oh yeah, and dodgeball. And, and so, yeah, th- those are great things. And um, I know I had a blast. I think I won nine Bumper pool championships. It's <laughs> a nine time win, but I would have much, much rather learned film. And um, I, I will say this, that the number one thing, uh, a cool thing that happened when I was at the Boys and Girls Club is that there was a guy uh, played for Vanderbilt uh, University, Will Purdue, went on to play with the Bulls during the Jordan era. And he came and visited us. And he taught us how to shoot free throws. And, um, you know, the irony of a seven foot center teaching you how to shoot free throws, except Will Purdue was actually one of those big men that could really shoot free throws. And um, I still shoot my free throws the way Will Purdue taught me to this day. You know, I rolled the ball twice, uh, you know, basically bounce it twice, rolling it back towards myself, bend my knees, release on the... uh, Release sort of at the at the top of that coming back up from from that bend, and that's how you do it, and you just get in that rhythm, and uh, it served me well my entire life. So I, I won't I won't say that it was all bad, uh, or actually none of it was bad, but but um, to have a film, um, the idea that someone could teach you how to shoot a movie and sort of build upon your life, I, I just want to thank you for that. Um, so, and, and first of all, Chris used to be glad Bill Cartwright, who was also a center at the time, who had one of the shittiest free throw forms of all time, <laughs> didn't come and teach you how to th- shoot free throws there. Um, but, you know, it's amazing as you watch that spark. Uh, you know, I am convinced that a lot of us have a spark somewhere in us. It's, it could be data analytics. It could be architecture. It could be remodeling. It could be filmmaking. But there's something in us that once that gets sparked, it just ignites. It's a bonfire and it drives us uh, beyond just wanting the, the, the glory of the profession or the celebrity or whatever it is. It's, it's wanting to do it because you enjoy it because it's, it's, um, it's fulfilling, right? The, the idea of the skills that you have, and you're living out those abilities and able to do that. And seeing some of these students like that, one of my biggest privileges has been because of my involvement in these things that I've been able to watch some of these students blossom into unbelievable talent. Like you couldn't, I mean, it's just, you, you get to play a little stepping stone along their journey. I mean, one of the, the, the DP that shot other versions of you, Micah Sims was, I, I met him when he was 16. He had just blown out his shoulder sliding into uh, third base, I think it was, in baseball, and realized that he couldn't play baseball anymore, randomly went to a film camp that I was teaching, and the guy is honestly one of the more talented DPs I've ever seen, and he continues to get better all the time. And I just kind of stand in awe of his talent and being part a small part of his journey as he's grown. And I think it's – I mean, I – I may go down a little bit of rabbit hole here for a second, but I want to encourage any creatives that are out there not to underestimate the value of teaching others how to unlock that themselves. Not from a sense of a superiority, hey, I have the answers, but more just being available to tell people, especially younger people, what can what they can do, what they can achieve, how 
how just telling your story a lot of times to say, I'm going to tell you my story. I don't know if it's going to be of worth to you, but maybe my experiences can help you be excited about what you're going through. Because I wish a lot of times I had those things when I was that age, but I didn't. And it took me a while to figure it out. So maybe you'll figure it out, you know, and, and be the next Steven Spielberg or the next Chris Nolan or the next Roger Deakins or whatever it is and just unlock that in people. So that's a quick rabbit hole of just encouraging creatives to get out there and make sure you're giving back because I don't think we can underestimate the power of going out there and just introducing people to the creative arts that could be possible in their life. Yeah. And you just gave the thesis for this entire podcast um, with, with that statement too. So I, I think our goals are, are very much aligned and I, I couldn't agree w- with you more. I think it's also cool. Kudos to your wife. Um, so often I hear the other side of that story uh, from creatives where it's the significant other in their life that is even without sometimes them realizing it, they are holding back the creative from doing the thing they, they most want to do. And in this case, you have a scenario where your wife's essentially pushing you out of the nest. Yeah, no doubt. And, and to those people that are in those situations, two things, I would, two things, one, hang in there and have honest conversations. And two, in many ways, shame on one of us if we're holding somebody back from doing that, because in many ways, it's more of a reflection on us than it is a reflection on that creative that it's that I like my wife's a prof- like she teaches uh, at a local elementary school, but she's also now um, teaching at a local university. And I just tell her, go out and figure like keep going, keep going, because that's it's kind of like a, a it's a uh, symbiotic system that if I'm feeding her in her future and her ambitions, then it, it comes back. And I think that's one of the the things that I, I, I told my wife the other day, I was like, listen, I was, I can't believe that you've not only embraced this so much, but she's also like my publicist. The number of times that she's like, hey, I met this guy <laughs> and I gave him your card and here's what I told him. She's, she's often more excited than, than I am. I'm kind of, I get a little jaded sometimes because you're like, oh man, who knows? People give business cards to each other all the time. She's like, no, no, no. You need to call this guy. And that kind of excitement definitely has spurred on me to keep going when those times uh, as filmmaking, it's it's the peaks and valleys often when you're in that valley to know that you kind of have a teammate that you can, um, that you can count on to be next to you. And I think that's an important conversation with creatives in, in a family situation to have those conversations so that they can all be on the, in the same direction because like she'll, she'll tell you many times, there's no real hour set. Like I don't sit around and go, Hey, nine to five. Sorry guys. I can't help anymore on this project. I'm, it's five o'clock. Like a lot of times she was generous enough to say, Hey, get done what you need to. And I'd be up till three o'clock in the morning when we were doing pre-production on other versions, or I was watching in post-production new versions of other versions of you and giving notes or whatever it might be. Um, I, I just, it's so important for people who are creators to try to figure out how to deal with the distractions in their life. And man, I could not imagine having that type of frustration at home where you're not on the same page. So I hope those people have those honest conversations because it's pretty awesome when you have somebody who's in your corner and cheering for you. And uh, I feel really honored and privileged to have that. Yeah, and um, uh, it's it's a huge asset. And uh, I tell you, all those late nights you spent on other versions really paid off. Um, It's, we're super duper proud to have been a part of that. Um, it's, it's not just a, a good movie. It's one of my favorite movies. So, um, we have a, and speaking of business cards, by the way, and it doesn't always, it's not always going to happen like this, but we have a friend who's a creative. He worked on, uh, uh the kids are all right. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but it's oh, a yeah. uh, yeah. great, great movie. His name is Derek Purvis. And, um, he has the best, hands down, no question, the best business card story of all time. So when his episode uh, airs, 
you'll be in for a treat. So I'll tease you with that, uh, Ryan. <laughs> for I'm, now. I'm a fan of great business card stories and great business cards. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. So I will definitely tune into that episode. Yeah. And we just kept tweaking our business card until, you know, Maki said it was good. <laughs> that's awesome uh he and i came up with the business card because you know you always wonder what that small pocket in your jeans is for mm-hmm. you're like what the hell like is that what is this and so we're like you know what that's a business card pocket and so we created business cards that slid into there so i, I you know it's I, oh, I, I love i love your business card the, the tiny little square it's great the tiny square that slides with your right head on it <laughs> yeah, that's uh, well, and I, I am thoroughly convinced. Like, hey, please put your picture on your business card because I've gone to numerous meetings. And I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what they look like. Like, I have no idea who I'm meeting for coffee, and I'm mm-hmm. you know texting them or Facebook message. Hey, uh, I'm tall. I have a beard, and I'm wearing a gray hat today. Otherwise, you're gonna be walking up to people like, hey, are, are you Bob? Are you yeah. Bob? And I've met a couple times where I've been sitting there. Someone comes over, hey, are you Rick? And I'm like, I'm not Rick, man. And uh, so put your face on a business card if you can without being creepy. But yeah. uh helps everybody get to know you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so here you are. You're back from Vancouver. You're teaching the eighth graders again. You flip that into teaching kids uh, film. And then you that, that maturated into uh, the underground. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah. how did – how did you? How did it's you start? It's a windy road, man. It's all over the place. Yeah. So, so tell our tell our listeners about the underground. You've been doing this for oh um, man, I've been doing it on and for off at least time. ten years, right? Yeah, like uh, yeah, and and these so in Cincinnati there was a nonprofit called the Underground um, that was to helping teens with music and media, and so I essentially was running the media side. We did a film camp that started off being one camp with like 15 kids. And, you know, now we do about a hundred kids this summer. We do four weeks. We do everything from sixth grade to 12th grade. Uh, we do all kind we do a thing called the teen film challenge now, which is, uh, essentially like it's a hybrid of, um, a bunch of competitions are out there, but this one's exclusively, exclusively for teens. And we built that this last year. We had 250 teenagers participate in that. And it's been, it's been a great place to stay young, you know, to, to be around the energy of those who are going into the field and remind myself of the joy of creating all the time and remind myself of, of the privilege I have to be a filmmaker and a content creator because a lot of these kids, you know, one of, one of my things that, uh, that I always remember is that it's okay to suck. Right. It's okay to suck. You, you got, you gonna have periods where it's okay to suck and to tell these kids it's okay to suck. You're learning these things. Let's just everything be the best you can be right now. And to realize that, that to be there and on the front lines of that creation has been just an absolute privilege because you watch, you know, like my first work, my first short films, I, I rarely show anybody because I'm, I don't know if I'd say I'm embarrassed, but I go, man, I've come so far in how I've come to understand the medium. And some of these kids, you'll watch them and you're like, holy crap, what are you making there? To now what they're making and you're like, wow, that thing was an essential stepping stone to where you are now. So the underground has been a great privilege to be part of. It's going on now. It's a little different. It's kind of changed. I'm a little bit more peripherally involved, but it's exciting still to have something here in the Midwest and frankly, something here in the country, there's not a lot of entities around the country that are built for teenagers, for them to emerge. So instead of going to USC or, uh, you know, wherever they go, I mean, you can, there's a host of film schools around the country. They're very expensive. They're oh, a yeah. lot of money. Oh, yeah. And instead of showing up your freshman year, which, which is crazy because we'll have some of our students who, by the time they get to film school, their freshman year, they've made probably – Anywhere between five and 15 films already. Wow. They'll show up in freshman year of class. And there are some people in there who have never actually made a short films from start to finish and who have never handled cameras and all this stuff. And like one of our, our girls, she's out um, at a film school outside of St. Louis. And 
she she's just finished she just finished up her freshman year this last year and all the films she made were with seniors because those were the people that she was on the level of in terms of of that so she had leveled up to such a place before she even got there that she not only identified her own passion to be a filmmaker but she'd also honed her skill to be well advanced in it and it's been awesome to watch that as she's gone through man She's accelerated the same thing with uh, another of our students who is going to film school in Boston and he's going to graduate in three years because he can move at such a speed because he had so much practice before he even entered film school. So not only did he throw, didn't throw money into student, I mean, he's going to have student loans coming out, but it's, it was a, um, it was a very calculated risk versus a gamble. Cause I think that the risks is, that you go in and you gamble that you're going to like film and you gamble that it's something that you've never actually, that it's going to meet uh, the idealization you might have versus the reality of what it is. And before you figure that out, you're, you know, 30 or $40,000 in debt. Right. Right. So the, the underground ends up being like a film incubator. Yeah. I mean, it's, a great, it's a great way of putting it. I think that's a great way of putting it. That's, it's a testing ground for you to mature um, a, a curiosity and maybe a hobby into something to see if you could potentially pursue it as a profession. Yeah, because you'll, you level up because you're in closer proximity to, to like minds and, and people who are passionate about the same thing. Whereas in a classroom setting, uh, you're, you're more isolated and you're competing against other classmates in, in, in a way. Uh, so so you're not learning from each other in the way you would in an incubator setting. Um, so I, I think that's very interesting uh, work. Um, you said you even met Micah when he was 16 and these folks come in at a young age and you kind of will teach all ages. What, um, what do you think are the biggest mistakes these young filmmakers make when they come uh, into your class? Man, that's a that's a great question. I, I, I think that um, one of the things that I've seen that a, a lot of people who are who are just getting to film, I think is the is a lack of humility, the lack of of being able to check your ego at the door. Um, I've seen a lot of, because cameras are so prevalent in our culture now that's so easy to make you know you, I could use my iPhone that's sitting right here and make a 4k video. Uh, I mean, look at Unsane. That's, I mean, you can, you can. That was do a that. good movie too. Um, I have not seen it, so I'd, I'm when I'm I found out still- it was shot on the iPhone, I it made yeah. it even better. Well, and it, then you it, had it, like Tangerine yeah. that was right. uh, was shot on the, on the iPhone as well. Yeah, so you have not- you have the means of the device now. Uh, I think it's the the maturing of a storyteller, like uh, of of recognizing a story that's worth telling versus a story that you just have sitting in your head. And, uh, you know, like I have a folder sitting in my file cabinet here in my office. that's full of ideas that never gone anywhere. Part of it's just, you know, you got to get them out and evacuate them onto a piece of paper. So you don't forget them that maybe one day they'll change and evolve into something. But I've watched several of my students who are, I mean, honestly are great talents that I've been involved with, but there's the danger of, starting to to believe your own hype, right? Because you're making mm-hmm. films that a lot of other people, they just don't make films, right. that you can believe your own hype. I think that's a really thing, big thing. But I also think it's evaluating your intent. Like, why are you making movies? Are you making movies because you want to have a certain type of celebrity status? Not like celebrity Hugh Jackman or Ryan Reynolds status or you know something like that. But just within your community, be known for that? Or are you making it because it burns in you and you need to tell great stories? Because the two can coexist. I mean, I do believe there's some amazing storytellers who are who happen to be celebrities, but also happen to be tremendous storytellers. But a lot of times I, I think that that if you're if you don't understand your own intent of what you're trying to do, it's easy that the ego can take over because you'll have people that are, whether it be your mom or dad or grandma or friends of the family will tell you you're amazing. If you believe your own hype too much, you forget to somehow, uh, to, to sometimes 
put the hard work behind the scenes to do what's necessary. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it helps them. I try to tell them all the time, listen, the, you putting your movie on a screen that people show up to watch is about 1% of the equation. There's so, it's such a small thing because most of the things are done outside of the spotlight. Most things are done with you and maybe a couple other people in a dark room watching a screen, taking notes and doing the tedious frame by frame work of what you shot or, or working in pre-production and going to scout locations or showing up early before the crew's there to make sure that craft services is ready on your little low indie short film or make sure that you're helping an actor run lines on Skype or whatever it is, right? Those are things that nobody sees that are not sexy in the least. They, they aren't the things that people make YouTube videos about to tell you how cool movie making is. But that's a lot of the time where the real work occurs. And so I, I, I think that's an important thing for for like to tell my to tell I tell my students a lot, but also for any newcomers to it, just to realize that really there's no I mean, sure, there's shortcuts. Let's be there's shortcuts to everything if you want. But the shortcuts often don't lead to you developing a creative ethic or creative work ethic that's gonna benefit you over time sustainably. Yeah, and and so when you see hubris and ego getting in the way of a potentially, you know, very talented uh, filmmaker uh, or future filmmaker or future writer or any of those things, what pieces of advice uh, have helped them overcome that, uh, that, that you've been able to give them? Mm. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Cause there, there's a keen balance between sharing advice in a situation and letting the situation itself become the advisor. Right. That, uh, you know, your own hubris and sometimes become the teacher uh, because you realize, oh, crap, this thing isn't as great as I thought. But it easily happens like, you know, two films down the road or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times what I just I, I, I tell them is to keep making things and keep surrounding themselves with good people, because usually during the time you don't want to be the asshole who's like, by the way, your stuff really isn't that good. <laughs> like because that that's its own hubris right that's its right. own that's its own thing and you've essentially then muted your voice for future advice because they're like i don't want to talk to that guy i have found though that when students or other people send me scripts to say hey do you mind reading this and tell me what you think i used to probably be a lot more candy coated than i am now mm. and so I can figure out how early in the process to speak constructively into that without being a wet blanket on them, but also not being a dishonest voice. Well, let me jump in real quick because I'm curious what changed, what made you be more direct now versus in the past where you were more candy coated. I mean, I think part of it is understanding a personality flaw I have personally, which is being a people pleaser Mm. that. I wanted these students to to sometimes like me versus respect me. And I think that's one of the things that I just realized as I've gotten older and kind of, you know, more experienced in life. Sounds cliche, but I just realized that was a personality flaw of mine. Even on a current project, I just realized that the other day I, I tried to take, you know, postmortem notes on projects and go, man, I need I need to be aware of this personality flaw. And so once I was aware of that within this relationship I had with my students in terms of evaluating their work, I realized that was becoming it was a, it was it was running interference in the honesty that the voice that I had. It wasn't that I was being dishonest, because there's a but one of my favorite phrases is honesty versus disclosure. That you can often hold information back without being dishonest, but in the creative process, often that information that you hold back can sometimes be the difference for them between understanding maybe a roadblock they have and helping and and instead leading them to believe that their project's ready to go, that this thing is all gung ho. Because what I mean, and this is goes back to it. And I think I'm sure a lot of creatives know that a lot of times it's the tedious work of revising ideas 
and finding honest voices in that is not enjoyable in the least. Mm-hmm. There's nothing enjoyable about writing draft 24 of a script and having people you trust tear into your idea and feel like my baby is essentially getting assaulted here. Right. Been there. Comes, but, but you surround yourself with people you trust and you know that they're not there to assault you personally, but that everyone's there for the good of the idea. And that only comes through trusted relationships. I mean, those there are a certain small circle of people that I trust that I can give them and say, please read this and know when that critique comes back that says, this isn't any good. It's not that they don't like me. It's that they want the best for me and they also know what we're trying to accomplish together. Like whether it be that we're working on the project, but they both know we're all trying to get better with the next project. And I think that with the students going back to your original questions of what do I, that I just say, Hey, listen, I want you to be, to make the next film to be the best film it can be where you are. And so here are some helpful things. And, um, it's, it's been tough that to not fall into a place where I'm trying to be liked but instead do a position where you're trying to constructively help them move forward. Yeah, and how you give that advice uh, is a skill too. Um, my dad, I would, I would write songs when I was first songwriting. Um, I started songwriting around 16. And um, as, as I've mentioned many, many times on this podcast, I started in, in music and I would sing my dad a song and he'd say, that's a great song. Now tell me who's going to sing it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's advice right there. That's like a movie making going, Hey, this is a great script. Who's your audience? Right. And they're like, uh, because you, yeah. I mean, that's what terrific advice. Right. So instead of saying, Hey Chris, you can't sing or you didn't sing this song well, or this song isn't for you to sing. You just, okay. Now who's going to sing it? Cause it, it can't be you. Because <laughs> that was the part I didn't like. Um, so uh, I always found that be, to be good. And it drove me to always sing a song and write a song that he would just say, that's great. Right. And there's a there's a, <laughs> a sort of a pitiful nature to that, too. But but I don't mean it in that way. I mean, I mean it in the most positive and and, and loving way, because that's the way I, I took it. And it really helped me. Uh, navigate the world of songwriting, which is basically trying to tell full stories in about, you know, 28 lines, uh, you know, depending on the length of the song. So, and, and taking out the choruses. So that, that type of compressed storytelling, um, really challenged me and intrigued me very early on. Same with, um, poetry writing. Um, tell, tell everyone where other versions of you is now, um, in its, in its process, um, in its maturation and in its cycle here and what can we expect, um, to see from it? Yeah. So other versions of you, um, have, we, we, we just signed a distribution deal here in late, I think it was mid to late August. And, uh, man, it's been such a fascinating process because of all now we're in a place where we're doing all the deliverables. Uh, that's that's not something filmmakers tell you about. Oh my gosh, that's tedious. <laughs> uh, but it's part of again part of the process. We, oh, by was, the way, bon, Bonsai will tell you about that. We, yeah, no, <laughs> if exactly. you if you if you have us on as a consult, we'll we'll help you with that. Anyway, and go it's ahead. A huge, it's a huge deal because you're making sure everything is buttoned up the way it should be, so there's no speed bumps in getting it out to the public. And uh, you know where it is. We're we're hoping uh, we we signed a, a distribution deal with. Um, a great startup out, uh, kind of they're young. I, I love it. Mark Cartier and, and Northa too. those guys, man, they have such passion for storytelling. And I think that's what drew us to them so much is that they're the spirit they inhabit and the spirit of other versions of you and how it came to be kind of this, uh, you know, bootstrap, let's get out there and get this done and let's tell great stories that really attracted to us. And we're hoping sometime in early 2019, probably in my guess is like, my guess is like probably more like Q2 in 2019 that -hmm. we'll see it released Uh, where it's going to be released. We're still working through, we're hoping for a limited theatrical run followed by, uh, you know, it's, it's on digital platforms and maybe on VOD and things like that. Uh, But it's been cool just to watch 
how other versions continues to kind of march down the trail to get out into the world, not just get on the world on Vimeo or, or somewhere where we put it out there, but really to a broad audience and to see how they receive it. And for the sake of the audience that, and congrats again, obviously on, on all the success uh, so far and uh, the movie obviously wouldn't have gotten as far as it, it, it has without, without your leadership uh, on it. But, but tell the audience who doesn't know about this movie, uh, what, what is this movie like? What, what other film would you compare other versions to if, if you had one? Oh, man. I mean, that's yeah, we get asked that often because it's one of the biggest things we've learned in our filmmaking over the years is to make sure that you are that you have some not other not only other comparables, but you have a genre that you can kind of lock into for audiences. so They don't get all confused. I would say a, a similar film for us would be something like About Time uh, that came out, which is highly underrated, by the way. If you yes. haven't seen that film, it's a tremendous film. Um, back in the, I believe it's by early two thousands or late nineties sliding doors with Gwyneth Paltrow would mm. be, a, um, good, good, uh, look at kind of how things are, you know, how our film goes. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it, it really comes down as a fantasy romance in many ways. And by that, it, it, it mainly, it, it, although it has some sci-fi elements with the parallel universe and stuff like that. It's really just it comes down to kind of a fantasy romance where it's it's a great date film. Um, you know, I've I've uh, showed it to many audiences. We did a lot of test screenings and things like that, and consistently people enjoyed it um, from a from a place where they could like oh, this is a movie I'd go see with a date, my wife or my girlfriend, or I'd I'd, I'd watch at home or whatever it is. Um, because it, there's a there's a certain universal trait of the idea of what we're all looking for and what we all find and learning how to to be okay and learning to uh, fully embrace what we find. Um, so it's it's been an exciting thing, and I hope that audiences really embrace it, and I hope that they find it to be as enjoyable as we have um, personally. I mean, I've seen the film. Oh my gosh. Countless, countless times. And I still enjoy it, which I hope, I hope that's not just not me blowing sunshine up there, but I, I think it's, it's one of those films where I think it's genuinely an, an enjoyable experience for an audience to have. Yeah, I agree. We always say it's just a movie that makes you feel good. You watch it and you leave and you feel, you don't feel cheated. Um, and it also makes you feel really good at the end of it. And uh, if you've ever loved someone or had any type of unrequited love, uh, it, it might just, it might just draw some uh, waterworks out of you. Um, so, so yeah, for sure. Uh, agree with you on that. You, you got a lot of great performances out of the cast uh, in other versions, but what performance, if you had to pick one, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but it, if you had to pick one, what actor or actress jumped out at you and where you said, wow, they were brilliant and they were better than advertised? Hmm. It's a tough question. Um, I, I mean, I, I, this is, this is going to be the safe answer because this is how I'll, I'll play the very political answer in this one, because I, I'm really blown away by all of our lead actors. Um, I mean, Chris Wente, that guy, I mean, we sh he's on screen 85% of the film, 90% of the film. I mean, the load we put on that guy's shoulders to to carry was incredible. Uh, I mean, Sarah Antonio, I mean, we asked her to play like 20 different versions of the same girl. Um, you know, C.J. Perry to, to really – she's done a couple – uh, you know, film things before, but nothing where it asked her to play this type of role and how she really embraced the Gwyneth role and the warmth that we could feel. And Brittany Bellant, who we'd known for years, is just like this, this sparky uh, sister that is just a Every time she's on screen, she lights up the screen. So it's hard to say because you, if I could point to different scenes where I'm like, man, that performance right there did it for me. That performance right there did it for me. I was blown away. And I think I've realized more and more, regardless of its films or commercials, that so much is asked of actors 
and how they then ingest that character and then show it to the world. And sometimes I, I look at the film and I just can't believe that we got the performances we did. And we asked a lot of them. We, we pushed them very hard and they delivered in spades. They, they, they have my, my eternal gratitude for what they brought to the screen. Yeah. Uh, man, I, I, um, I was really, um, really taken aback by how, how good Brittany did. And, and I think you're right as well. Like for, for Chris to have, and Sarah to have such challenging roles. Uh, and even CJ, like you said, I mean, she just kind of played herself. Um, but now she had to play this person that was, I would say, I think the Gwyneth character is maybe the polar opposite of who she <laughs> kind of yep. is otherwise. And so um, really good job by her uh, as, as well. And um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what the audience feedback is. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, sort of early in your career, you know, you were around Ralph Winter, you were around Brian Singer, many others. Um, are there filmmakers, producers um, that you want to emulate, that you want your career to emulate? And, and if so, who are they and, and uh, what did they do that, that makes them so special to you? You know, I think about this a lot because it, it, I read a lot of different books and I've really enjoyed reading about some of these filmmakers and what their careers have been like. Uh, I recently watched the Spielberg documentary on HBO and was really – I've always loved Spielberg because part of it is I was a kid of the 80s and Spielberg was – you know has an indelible touch on that decade. Uh, still, I mean he's still a tremendous influence. And I've really enjoyed kind of his story because it resonated with what I'd seen in many of the kids I work with that making movies in your backyard and just keeping going and, and how he and that group of people that kind of that cohort he had in LA that, um, you know, they, they, they made some tremendous things and that, that energy. So I, I really appreciate that. I've really, uh, enjoyed recently, um, Christopher McQuarrie who is, uh, the I, love, I, lo I love him. And if, if you, man, if I can, ever, if ever I, since, I, uh, usual suspects, yes, usual suspects. But if I can recommend some other podcasts on this, which made me, you know, the, Hey, no, go for by it. By the way, one of the things filmmakers listen to podcasts, cause dear God, there's some unbelievable ones out there, but Christopher McQuarrie might be the most disclosing filmmaker I've ever, I've ever come across. He did something for the Q&A on Mission Impossible 5, and then he just did a six-hour podcast with Empire Magazine on MI6. Wow. And, and you learn so much about him that you realize how much, regardless of the size budget you have, regardless of the stars that you have, how much of it comes down to story and how much of it comes down to the similar struggles that indies and big tent poles share the ideas of not, you know, trying to keep good hours. So your turnaround times, keep your actors sustainable. Your, your thing of not knowing exactly how the arcs are all going to play out. The idea of gear failing, the idea of people getting sick, whatever it is. And man, listening to him over the last, uh, you know, over the last couple months has really been inspiring to know that these these struggles are everywhere. They're not just unique to independent filmmakers. Every filmmaker struggles with these. So those are, those are just two off the top of my head in terms of filmmakers that inspire me though. Edgar Wright has been somebody that I've loved. Christopher Nolan. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed um, Terrence Malick. I love his style, even though I'm sure I've never produced his work and I can being a producer, he would terrify me to work with, but I love – he has captured some of the most beautiful things I've, I've seen on film. And uh, you know, one of the things I, I love more than anything right now is I love episodic content. I've been watching a ton of you – know, we're in the renaissance of the small screen over the last probably decade now. And to watch the performances and stories being told there have been inspiring to the, to the point now that um, I've dipped my toe into trying to develop episodic content, which I didn't think originally I'd, I'd try to jump into, but trying to do that. So 
there it's there, there's a lot of great inspiration around yeah and i'll give you two quick recommendations if uh if you'll allow me um one on christopher mccrary uh he wrote and directed a movie starring uh, benicio del toro and ryan Philippi called the way of the gun Jam the gun yes and uh, most people don't know about it saw that movie what, what'd you say I said, we might be one of four people that saw that movie. <laughs> I know. No, I owned it for years and years and years. I think I still own it um, um, digitally. And uh, it has so, – so, folks, if you haven't seen it and you love great chase scenes, you will see one of the most unique and best done chase scenes uh, ever. And you might watch and say, hey, Chris, I watched it. Where was the chase scene? It's – it's different. So I'm just, I'm just telling you, it's, it's a, it's a chasing with the cops and Ryan Phillippe and, and, and it's different, but it's brilliant and it's so original. So check that out. And then, um, on Amazon prime, they have a show called uh, the Romanovs and, um, um, it's, I don't know if the show is going to be great, but I know the performances so far are, really fantastic. Um, some of the things that these actors and actresses do in, in silence is, is remarkable. It's worth looking at if you're, if you're an actor or actress for sure. Um, Aaron Eckhart's well, amazing too that you're using a visual medium. I mean, that is one of the biggest things when you can see what you can do with just visuals, right. And how much commanding actors can do without speaking a word. And how much is expressed through a look and all that. Man, there's almost nothing more that gives me the chills than watching an actor who can command the screen without saying a word. I mean, it's just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it goes back to that advice um, our good friend Ted Welch gave on this podcast of know where the camera is, know where your eye line is, and and understand that they're catching you, um, those facial expressions. Be be great at that, and, and you'll do a great job as an as an actor. Um, if you had one month, Ryan, to to teach someone how to be a producer, producer is kind of a this job that's you mentioned lazy earlier in the call and almost laughed because it's the exact <laughs> opposite of it. It's it the hardest job in the world, and there's no job description for it. Um, but if you had to teach someone how to to be a producer in one month, what would be the first three things you teach them? Holy crap. Well, the first thing I do is I just take them on set, right? Have them there to see all the different things that a producer does. Cause it's one of those things where if you started listing down sometimes, at least in independent world. And I think, it, I mean, it doesn't seem to stop outside of that. As far as I can tell you, you have your hand a little bit in everything. And a lot of times you're making decisions on the fly that you may or may not fully understand the impact of. I think I'd also have them start learning to use Excel spreadsheets Interesting. because that's one of those things that people don't realize how much you're going to need to take data that's incoming, whether it be contact data of people, whether it be uh, you learning how to list, uh, how to do notes on um, using time code, things like that. And then I'd also say I teach them how to do project management. Use something like Basecamp or Asana or some other tool to keep yourself organized because I think one of the number one sins, and I am guilty as anybody, of producers is you want to do everything. Like you, you're like, that idea needs to be done. We need to do this. And you overcommit and then the problem is your reputation is often staked on your follow through, right? So if you will be, if you become rapidly known as the guy, the idea guy, but not the execution guy, your producer career is probably going to be pretty short lived. But if you're the person who can execute on ideas uh, and make things happen, that's the kind of guy that people want to hire because they're like, I need someone to get shit done. Be that person. Yeah, I, I love that advice. Nick and I are going to do a workshop and we're going to do like a mini one on this podcast where me and him are just going to get on and talk about sort of the the, the nebulous, mysterious world of being an executive producer and what makes for a good one and, and what makes for one that makes a few mistakes and maybe some bad investments. 
and uh, we'll we'll do part one on the podcast, and then we're hoping to do a live um, workshop uh, with some partners in town, and uh, we'll probably do it in Nashville, do and do one in LA. Um, that's the plan, and talk about that. But but that uh, the reason I bring that up is because your your talk track there about being an idea person only is so true. Uh, because one of the most critical things um, you, you you look for as an EP is how can you tell if the producers can execute their idea? Because that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, especially in a world where a lot of independent films either don't even know to do this or don't have their film bonded. So they really have to execute, execute on budget and execute on time or you put the entire investment at risk. But that's for another podcast, my friend. <laughs> it's a tremendous subject to get into that would be worth another conversation on in the future because I think there is a very tangible and a um, logistical element that people don't like to talk about it, mainly because it's not sexy. I mean, I'm, I've, I've used that term earlier in this podcast, but it's not sexy because those are the things, though, that if you understand what you're getting into better, like it's for me, it's like fishing, right? Everyone tells you about the joy of catching the fish, of watching the bobber. Very few people tell you, except when they laugh, about what it's like to have to take the hook out of the eye of a fish or mm. to watch caught it for your son who's like, don't kill the fish. And you're like, well, I can't <laughs> help it. I'm trying to yank this thing out or how sharp the fins are. Those are like the things you're not going to go, well, guys, we're going to go fishing. In the meantime, we're going to put a hook through a fish's eye. Like you're, you're not saying those things. That's the reality of what could happen. And I think a lot of times in independent filmmaking, we forget that a lot of it is stuff that people just don't talk about enough, especially. And if we don't talk to producers, writers, director, future uh, uh, writer, directors, producers about these realities, I think that in many ways we put a ceiling on the pace of their evolution, the pace of their growth, because they'll grow disillusioned very quickly and sometimes even pick up terrible habits that may cap their storytelling power and what they can accomplish. I completely 100% agree. You're right. You're right on it. Um, Ryan, you are the man. And um, I hope to see you either in Cincinnati or down here in Nashville soon. You know, um, I'm up in Cincinnati a lot more these days uh, for reasons me and you both know. And uh, and I was up there just uh, two weekends ago and, and had a blast. That's awesome, man. Well, every time you come to the Queen City, love to grab a beer with you sometime. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been a privilege and an honor. And honor's all mine. And um, tell everybody one more time where they can find you on social media and on the Internet. Yeah, you can find me um, on, you know, I, I put the LinkedIn out there because I think that's something you can actually, I put, I don't post usually a lot of professional stuff on Facebook. I keep that more personal, but uh, on LinkedIn and just Ryan Hartsock, all one word, same thing with Instagram and Facebook. Feel free to, to seek me out there. I don't have a, a website for myself. Maki and I have a production company called Paper Ghost Pictures, and I also work with a, a place in Nashville called Five Stone Studios doing a lot of different work. And uh, hopefully, you know, some of the stuff I'm developing, we may have another conversation down the road if it, if it, uh, if it hits the, the small screen in episodic stuff. That's awesome. And do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? One, one thought, one, uh, parting remark. You know, I'm, I'm going to repeat Ralph's quote because I think it's an important thing for all of us to realize because we're not all in the place we thought we would be whether it be actually geographically, whether it be from a family place, professional place, personal place, but produce where you are. If you want to be a filmmaker, if you want to be a screenwriter, if you want to be uh, a cook, if you want to be whatever, right? We could fill in the blank. Then you, you got to do it where you are. You're no good where you're not. So go out there, try it. Be okay with sucking for a while because that's going to help you get better but go out and produce where you are because I think I am convinced uh, both in my story and many, many others that I've seen that that helps create an environment where 
where you can truly try to become all that you can creatively and maybe professionally and personally be. I love it, man. Awesome. I'm going to hold you to that beer. And uh, thank you so much again for the time. Talk to you soon, my man. All right. Thanks so much. All right, Ryan. Be good. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects, social media, and transcripts of this interview, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash podcast. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.